It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Wednesday, January 20th, 2021, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Our theme for today is entitled A New Dialogue Between Israeli Jews and Israeli Arab Palestinians. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Alevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and myself, will be discussing a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. The complex relationship between Israel's Jewish majority and its Arab minority appears to be at a turning point. For the first time in Israel's history, Jewish parties from the right as well as the center and the left are actively courting the Arab vote. Suddenly, everyone seems to have discovered that Arab voters constitute 20% of the Israeli population. And in the deadlock of Israeli politics, the Arab vote could be decisive as we head to round four of elections in March. In the last round, the Arab community achieved an unprecedented electoral victory. The United Arab List, a coalition of four Arab parties, won 15 seats in the Knesset. Yet that victory turned out to be empty. The Jewish parties continued to shun the Arab List, and Arab MKs made little effort to reassure a wary Jewish public that they could be trusted as partners in governance. Part of the List's anti-Zionist ideology and the support in the past of at least some of the MKs for acts of Palestinian terrorism have made the Arab list untouchable. But now everybody seems to be talking about an Arab-Jewish coalition. Even the right, Prime Minister Netanyahu in the past demonized Arab voters as a threat to Israel is now actively courting them. What has caused both Arabs and Jews to reconsider the political relationship between them? More importantly, how does this impact our understanding of Israel as a Jewish democratic state? and the future of Israeli society. Yossi, it's wonderful to be with you again. Always, Daniel. Everyone is noticing how the major Israeli parties on both the left and the right are courting Arab voters. Let's start with what's going on on the Arab side. Do you believe Arab voters are today more open to these advances on the part of Jewish parties? What has changed in your mind? No question that there's a change in the Arab community. 
much more on the street than among the politicians, but it's beginning to influence the politicians too. And I sense two motives in this new attitude uh, among our voters. One is a negative motive and the other is positive. The negative is the rise in crime, violent crime, in, in the murder rate in the Arab-Israeli community, which has just skyrocketed in the last few years. The police response has been almost non-existent. There's been tremendous negligence. We're seeing something which, in an American context, is inconceivable. In America, they're demonstrating to defund the police, and here the Arab-Israeli minority is demanding more police presence in their communities. So there's this sense of we need to be part of the game, we need to be part of the political mainstream, because we're not getting the protection we need. That's the first thing. The positive incentive here, I think, is corona. For the first time, we have seen the Arab-Israeli community taking full part in a national emergency effort. This is our first national emergency that has nothing to do with security. And so the Arab-Israeli community has really stepped up. The fact that 25% of Israel's doctors are Arab, 30% of our nurses are doctors, created this opportunity for the Arab-Israeli community to rise to the occasion. And that's really what we're seeing playing out. A lot of people have said for years that Israeli Arabs have wanted to be part of Israeli society, maybe at least for the last almost generation, or definitely the last number of decades. And the Palestinian conflict just alienated them inside. They wanted to be part of the Israeli society, but there was this ingrained ambivalence. Being an Israeli Arab, it was not simple, because there wasn't an accusation. There was an experience of dual loyalty. And so what you're saying with corona is it's on a psychological experiential level. It's not that that issue has been resolved, because the Palestinian conflict is far from being resolved. But on a psychological existential level, my Israeliness feels far more dominant than before. When we're all in the same boat with corona, it's, I'm an Israeli. Right now, my destiny is not in Ramallah. My destiny is going to be determined in Jerusalem. It's determined in the Knesset. And by the way, it's not then dissimilar to American Jewish multiple loyalties. Everybody has multiple loyalties. But at certain moments, someone says, this is what's most significant for me. It's not that I don't care about Israel. My dominant question is, what is good for America? And that's what I have to choose because that's where I live, etc. And it could be that Israeli Arab Palestinians have become more like American Jews. My core reality is here. Not that I don't have issues. Our friend Mohammed Darausha, who uh, has just announced the formation of the first Arab-Israeli party that accepts a Jewish state as a given, I think it's an extraordinary development. But Darausha used to put it in the following way. Palestinians are politically Palestinian, their identity is politically Palestinian, and culturally Israeli. That they're more and more culturally Israeli. I think that what's happening today is more complicated. I think that partially their political identity is becoming more Israeli, and maybe culturally more strongly Palestinian. 
And uh, if that happens, then I think that that's a dynamic that the Jewish majority can live with. So let's turn to the Jewish majority for a moment. What's changed on the side of the Jewish majority? Is it simply political opportunism and cynicism that, you know, here it is, the Jewish vote can't resolve the elections? Or is it just that? Or is there something deeper in your mind going on? Well, I wouldn't call it cynicism, but pragmatism. We're going into round four of elections in less than two years. And all the polls, every poll, shows the same thing, which is we're going to have a stalemate at the end of round four. Now, maybe there'll be some last minute changes, but the way things look now is we are going into stalemate number four. So the reason for that stalemate, and I think this is actually not just pragmatic, but also metaphorical. The reason for the stalemate is because we are excluding 20% of our population. The fact that 20% of Israeli voters are not part of any calculation leaves the 80% stuck in an impossible situation. So yes, the motive is pragmatic. The political system is responding to an impossible dilemma. And we're turning to the 20% and we're saying, well, we have no choice. But there's something that's very moving about this process. We're coming to a very belated but essential realization that the 80% can't continue to govern this country indefinitely without the 20%. Because the 80% are too divided. We're gonna, we just are going to be completely self-destructive. So therefore, we have to take somebody who you, we thought used to be our enemy and now help him save us. That's an interesting take. Now, I wonder, though... <laughs> I wonder, though, Yossi, whether, just like when you spoke about they're politically becoming Israeli, or I spoke beforehand where their existential experience is more dominant Israeli, I think we're seeing one of the dividends. There used to be the old, you know, the classic, Lolam Esav Sonet Yaakov, Esav will forever be the enemy of Jacob. The Jews are destined to perennial war with Arabs. And, you know, the Israeli Arabs haven't been that way. They've always been loyal Israeli citizens. They might vote for this, but they're, by and large, law-abiding citizens who the amount of terrorism that has grown out of the population is minuscule, minuscule. It never, it never surfaced. And so I wonder whether we're seeing the world in less dichotomous terms. Israelis are now rushing to Abu Dhabi. What happens when we realize that we have an Abu Dhabi right next to us? Like, we have partners, trading partners, people who are doctors, people who we want to share a future with. So why not? Can we leave aside the Palestinian conflict? So Israelis are beginning to think about Arabs not only through the prism of the Palestinian conflict. Israeli Arabs are beginning to look at Israeli Jews not only through the Palestinian conflict. And then all of a sudden, there's a deeper shift taking place in which citizen could turn to citizen and say, you know, the bottom line is, this is not our issue right now. We have other issues. Or if that will become an issue, it's an issue which is dependent on somebody else, not us. So can't we do something together? What's your take on that? It's a great way to put it that Israeli Jews are discovering that we have an Abu Dhabi literally in our midst. <laughs> Daniel, did you see the prank that a group of Arab Israelis pulled a few weeks ago? They dressed up in the Gulf states long white robes. No, I didn't see and they, it. And they walked through the streets of Tel Aviv and they were greeted like heroes. <laughs> That's perfect. 
Beautiful. <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. And of course, the point was, idiots. You don't have to go to Abu Dhabi to encounter the, the Arab world right here. But you know, I think you're absolutely right. And that the Abraham Accords have affected Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis in different ways with the same positive conclusion. The impact on Arab Israelis is that, wait a minute, the Arab-Sunni war against Israel is over. The 70-year war of the Sunni Arab world is over. I mean, it's now shifting to Shiite Iran and Hezbollah and Syria. But for 70 years, we were besieged by the Arab-Sunni world. And that's over, actually over. And I believe that the Arab-Israeli community has internalized it. I also think there's a fair amount of anger and maybe even shame in the Arab-Israeli community that the only party to vote against, not to abstain, they voted against the Abraham Accords in the Knesset was the United Arab List. I think that the serious drop in support for the uh, Arab List that we're seeing in every poll might be partly a result of that. Because we know that for years, when Israeli Arab Palestinians are polled on what are the issues that are most important to you, issue number one is, is safety and security from violence. Number two is economic opportunity. Issue number three is education. Issue number four is health. And the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is number five, but their leadership has always made it the number one issue. And so there was a huge dissonance that continued for a long time. So now maybe it's getting worked out. I want to move you slightly to another dimension of this issue. It could be that this is just for this fourth election. Who knows? We're so self-destructive. We need somebody to save us from ourselves. But under the assumption that maybe this is the beginning of a deeper, serious transformation, what do you think this Jewish-Arab partnership looks like? What do you think it demands from Jewish participants after the election? And what does it demand from the Arab ones? Paint a picture. Let's be optimistic. Uh, let's be hopeful. I'm very hopeful about this. And even if the incentive is political and pragmatic, once we cross that threshold, create a Jewish majority Arab minority government, there's no turning back for either side. We will have compromised each other's fears, if, if you want to put it that way. So the deeper next step in the relationship, I think, has to be on the Jewish side, we need to own Israel's identity as a democratic state. And on the Arab side, they need to own Israel's identity as a Jewish state. And by that, I mean, on the Jewish side, owning our identity as a democratic state means coming to terms with Israeli democracy as not just a means by which we govern, but it is an essential value. It is intrinsic to our identity as a Jewish state. Most Jewish Israelis are not quite there. To say that democracy is as non-negotiable a value in Israeliness as the Jewishness of the state, that's where we have to go. Where the Arab Israelis have to go is where Muhammad Darasha has just taken the first step, which is we accept the legitimacy of the Jewish people's return home, we accept the legitimacy of Israel as a Jewish majority state on one condition, that the Jewish majority accepts the legitimacy of Israel as a democratic state, fully 
a fully democratic state without exceptions. Actually, Muhammad Arausha, I think he makes the distinction between the homeland of the Jewish people and a Jewish state. He says, I categorically reject that this is a Jewish state. If it's a Jewish state, where am I? It's the homeland of the Jewish people that I accept. This is the nation state of the Jewish people. Absolutely, you are the majority. But it can't just be a Jewish state. He's now telling the Israeli media that I accept Israel as a Jewish state and a democratic state. But you Jews have to accept Israel as a democratic state. You know, it's one thing to, to try to create a coalition. It's another thing to change our culture. See, we've had Arab Supreme Court justices. We've even had a president being put in jail by an Arab Supreme Court justice. But that hasn't changed the culture. I don't think it's going to be from a coalition between Jewish and Arab parties, but I think it's by opening up our parties to multiple representatives. It's taking the step that you're not a foreign entity. I think this is what Yair Lapid has to do. I think this is what Gidon Saar is committed to doing. I think Bennett is open to it, but whether his voters would do it or not. It's when you go deep down and to say, yes, we share a platform. I don't want you to be the minister of minority affairs. I want you to be the minister of health or the minister of transport. I think that cultural change when Israeli Arab Palestinians will be ministers as a shared Israeli agenda, I think that's some of the long-term shift where we might move from pure political to a deeper identity transformation, where I think, as you said, I think we'll be able to do it. Because the fact is, we are the majority. Again, to quote Muhammad Arausha, the problem is that Israeli Arabs are a minority who think of themselves as a majority, and Israeli Jews are a majority with the consciousness of a minority. Like, let's get over it, ladies. It's like, we want. To be able to be democratic doesn't undermine our Jewishness, but it is actually an enhancement and an expression of it. Let's take a short break. And when we return, Ilana Steinhey will join us. Join us February 14th through 18th for an interfaith symposium exploring questions of truth, difference, and allyship. Learn with outstanding Hartman scholars, including Ilana Steinhain, Danielle Hartman, and Abdullah Antepli, and guest experts like Amy Jill Levine, Mark Brettler, and Malka Simkovich. For more information and to register, visit winter.hartman.org.il. Ilana, it's great to be with you again. What classic sources do you want to share with us that you think could enrich the way we think about this moment of potential transformation? You know, it's really interesting because as I listen to you, I'm thinking about just how big a shift this is in the norms of how Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis have worked, worked with each other, against each other, completely parallel paths. And looking at something that's been done a certain way always, and then seeing that people are at an impasse where they say there's something inadequate about the way things have been done, that really makes me think about how rabbinic tradition talks about moments of transformation is too strong a word, but moments of sea change, essentially, or allowing for an abrogation a real, almost just a, a fork in the road and choosing to go a different way. And when the rabbis talk about these kinds of moments where 
you look at the way that things have always been done and you say there's something inadequate about that for this moment. They actually have two ways of talking about it. And I want to explore these two ways because I think they have resonance, even as the two of you are trying to figure out from the Arab side what's going on. How are they thinking about this change from the Jewish side, pragmatism, but aspirationalism, what's exactly going on here? I think that the rabbis actually capture this really magnificently in two different ways that they talk about moments like this. One is to talk about a moment like this as an emergency measure. We call it hora'atsha in Hebrew, literally a ruling for the moment, a temporary ruling. And it's about recognizing a crisis and responding to it in a limited way and saying, you know, for the time being, this is what we're going to have to do. There's another way that the rabbis talk about this kind of fork in the road, which is, I'm going to call it a paradigm shift. It's not just about crisis, it's about change. And to me, that's where the idea of takana, which we usually call a decree, but it really means establishing something. And a takana has a totally different discourse. It has a totally different rhetoric. And of course, the rabbis are talking about rules. They're talking about laws. And they're asking what happens when a law is inadequate for the moment. And in this moment, we're, we're talking about something else in Israeli society, but it's parallel. It's what happens when the norms, when the conventions are inadequate for this moment. So I think it's really parallel. So I want to dig in to one example of each, just so we can feel what the conversation sounds like when the rabbis speak in the register of emergency and when the rabbis speak in the register of establishing something. So we'll start with the register of emergency. Now, this is Maimonides in his Laws of Rebels, Hilchot Mamrim, chapter 2, section 4. Here's a little excerpt. He talks about how sometimes the court is going to have to break the law. And he says they can do what the moment needs, just as a doctor amputates the arm or the leg of someone in order to save them. Likewise, a Jewish court can rule for a temporary abrogation of some commandments in order for the Torah as a whole to be upheld. Like the sages said, when someone's life is in danger on the Sabbath, violate this one Sabbath in order to help them observe many Sabbaths in the future. It's an amputation. It's a violation. This is not something you want to go on for a long time. You want the patient to heal. You want to get a prosthetic and everything will be fine. You want to fix Chelm so that you can get along with your 80%. Right? That's one kind of rhetoric. But listen to the Takana rhetoric. Totally different discourse. You know, one of my favorite examples of a Takana is the one that Hillel, the elder, made in the way that people observe the sabbatical year. Every seven years, the Torah requires that all loans be canceled. Could you imagine it? I, I lend you $10,000 and you don't have to pay me once the sabbatical year is over. I'm out $10,000 and your slate is wiped clean. You're not in the red anymore. But there's a real problem here because eventually people stop lending money, right? A rule that was supposed to lead to charity actually led to people being miserly. And so Hillel steps in, recognizing the inadequacy, but listen to the way that rabbinic literature talks about this. Here we go. It's the Mishnah in Shvi, chapter 10, Mishnah 3. 
This is one of the things enacted, established by Hillel. He saw that the people refrained from giving loans to one another. And he recognized that these people who refrained from giving loans were transgressing what was written in the Torah. Be careful not to have base thoughts and be hostile to your poor brother and not give them anything. And so Hillel ordained the Prusbal, a document that would help enact the ability to collect loans in the sabbatical year. He's not cutting off anybody's arm or leg. He's not violating the Sabbath. He's restoring Torah principles. The way it's described is he recognized that actually because people were following the letter of the law, they were actually not fulfilling other parts of the law, which is you got to make sure that you give loans to people. It's such a different way of thinking. And I wonder when I hear, you know, I'm sure that different people, politicians, people on the ground, national politicians, local politicians, Jews, Arabs, right, left, I'm sure that different people use different rhetoric about this. Is this an emergency measure? And, you know, I'm going to hold my nose and do it. Is this transformative? Does it have transformative potential? Is there something about who we are that we haven't been fulfilling and now this gives us the chance to fulfill it? So that that's where my mind is as I'm thinking about this. Absolutely fascinating. The difference between the uh, emergency measure and the Takana, the establishment in these two texts, is in the explanation you give, not necessarily in your motivation. Who knows what your motivation might be? What is the language you give? Hillel says, my goal is to establish the goals for which Jewish life and Jewish law were aspiring. My commitment is to these goals. The question is, what story do we tell? What story do we tell at this moment? Do we tell the story of, listen, there's nothing we could do, you know, I need it. Or do we create a rhetoric? And even, by the way, even if that language is not sincere, even if Netanyahu, just a year ago, he said, they're coming out to vote, let's save Israel from them. The mere fact that he's doing it, he's talking about the need to reach out and to deal with the needs of Israeli Arabs. He sees them. It's a process of telling a different story. Yes, yes. I think it's really, it really is going to that direction of a values conversation, whether it's sincere or not, as you, as you put it, it doesn't matter. Because Netanyahu is not only speaking about needs, he's also speaking about Israel as a democratic society. And there was a terrific piece in Yisrael Hayom, which is Netanyahu's mouthpiece. In these last years, it's been very hostile to uh, Arab citizens. And one of the editors writes a column just the other day saying, the right isn't against Arabs. We have nothing against Arabs. <laughs> as long as they're willing to be part of the, the democratic system, of course they're citizens. So, you know, what isn't done, Lishma, what isn't done for its own sake, in the end, is still a step forward. I think there's also something about setting a precedent and facts on the ground, right? If there's anything that rabbinic tradition and rabbinic law really, really values and can, can never look away from, it's precedent. I mean, when the rabbis mm -hmm. see something that was done and it happened, they have to ask themselves, 
how do we explain how this happened? It becomes part of the DNA. You know, Danielle and I were actually talking about this to kind of Hillel's recently, and he pointed out to me, he said, well, it's interesting that later generations ask, well, did Hillel mean to make that Takana like forever? Or was that just for his time? And I love that question a few generations later, because what they're saying is, well, we've got a new normal. Do we want to <laughs> stick with it? So there's going to be at some point a review. And we look back and we say, well, okay, now, I guess this is the new normal. There's no going back. I, I think that's like an interesting second conversation, right? As this becomes part of the DNA and this becomes part of precedent, what are the next steps that that leads to? I'd love to conclude on this idea that you just mentioned, Ilana, because precedent, one of the fascinating things about Jewish legal tradition is that the tradition argues that behavior doesn't mirror your innermost feelings. Our tradition doesn't care about that sincerity. You know, you could, most laws, you could fulfill the law even though your intention is flawed. Because our tradition believes that it's not that behavior mirrors your intention, but that behavior at the end changes your intention. What we're all witnessing now is rhetoric, but very soon we might witness a new precedent. Another generation, if they're going to want to change it, is going to have to change the precedent because the precedent is creating a facts on the ground. And again, as Yossi said, whether they're doing it for good intentions or not, our tradition also says we accept people who do things for good intentions or they do them for bad intentions because the bad intentions will ultimately become good intentions. It'll be interesting to see how a deeper societal change could grow out of political expediency. It'll be, it's a remarkable moment. It was wonderful, Yossi and Ilana, being with you and learning with you. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was co-produced by David Svi Kelman and Alex Dillon and edited by Tali Cohen. Music is provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at forheavenssake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Again, Yossi, Ilana, thank you. <laughs>